Okay, we're going to listen to some Billy Carson, Enuma Elish, and the Seven Tablets of Creation. Unveiling ancient wisdom. I've been using Tonal for a few Enuma weeks now, Elish. and I can tell you it's an absolute game changer if you work and out the at origins home. Like of most our people galaxy. in small basements. We now, we're going to go over the Enuma Elish, the Seven Tablets of Creation. Now, the Enuma Elish is actual real tablets that were discovered in Iraq. But these are the Seven Tablets of Creation. And you can see these indentions on these tablets are actually cuneiform text that were actually put on here uh, with a something called a stylus. And we're going to show you how it's actually done in one of the videos. Um, and these tablets are real. They're not, you know, fabrications. They're real tablets that actually exist. The Enuma Elish, also in Akkadian in cuneiform, is spelled Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian creation myth. It was recovered by Austin Henry Laird in 1849 in the ruined library of Ashurbanipal at Nineveh in Moscow, Iraq. It was published by George Smith in 1876. The Enuma Elish has a, a thousand lines and is recorded in old script. Now, most of the Tablet 5 has never been recovered until recently, which we're going to go over, because it's really amazing that they just found Tablet number 5 uh, not too long ago, and it's, an actu it's actually in a museum in Iraq right now. Uh, so we had a big portion of that Spread tablet missing, USA but now because of that, the story is even much more clear. The epic is one of the most uh, important sources for understanding the Babylonian worldview centered on the supremacy of Marduk. And we're going to talk about Marduk a little bit today. That's also known as Amun-Ra. For those of you who don't know, his, his other name is also Amun-Ra, a brutal ruler of uh, ancient Egypt before it was even called Egypt. And the creation of humankind for the surface uh, of the gods. The primary original purpose, however, is not the exposition on theology or theology, but the elevation of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, above all other Mesopotamian gods. Now, one thing you understand, when you hear me say the word God, I'm not talking about the creator of the universe, okay? When we're talking about the ancient Sumerians, we're always talking about people. Uh, I, I consider them people. Some people say that they think that they're wraiths or ghosts or multidimensional beings and so forth. You can believe whatever you want. Based on my research and the physical evidence of bones being discovered and skulls discovered that are in museums around the world and myself going to Cairo Museum and seeing you know, what's there, uh, in my personal opinion, these were flesh and blood people that were just much more advanced and uh, displayed high levels of technology. And because of that, we call them gods. We revere things that we believe are magical or that we can't understand. And we, we, it happens all the time. It's called a cargo cult. I think that human beings are the biggest cargo cult probably in the solar system. We saw these beings come here and, um, and they displayed magic science, which is advanced technology, and it wowed us. And uh, we've been praising them ever since. Um, Amun-Ra, for example, Marduk, a lot of people don't know that um, he was the one who ushered in mes uh, uh, monotheism. Monotheism is the belief in a one world God and not to worship any other gods. Matter of fact, in the Sumerian tablets it says, you are not to worship any other God but me, which is the same thing it says in the Bible. Amun-Ra is the one who ordered everybody to say uh, Amen or Amun-Ra at the end of every prayer, which then became shortened to Amen. So at the end of every prayer, whoever says Amen is actually giving thanks and homage to one of the most brutal rulers of all time. And that's what happens when, you know, you don't research or you don't know. It's, it's, it's something, it's a part of the process. You have to, somebody has to tell it to you. Now that I've told you, you should go look it up because it's very valid and very true. When you go into the ancient tablets, you discover a lot of things that will wow you <laughs> and maybe even frighten you a little bit. The Enumalists exist in various copies from Babylonia and Assyria. The version from the library of Ashurbanipal dates back to the 7th century BCE. The composition of the text probably dates to the Bronze Age, to the time of Hammurabi, and perhaps earlier to the Kassite area, 
era, roughly uh, 18th century to 16th century BCE. So we're talking about very old documents that predate the Bible by many, many, many thousands of years. Okay. This is tablet number five, which was recently found in Sulaymaniyah Museum in Iraq. Tablet five. This was just last year. Uh, somebody stumbled across it at the actual museum. It was never even labeled. Nobody knew exactly wow. what it was until a, um, a, a scholar said, hey, man, I think this looks familiar. <laughs> Could this be the missing tablet to the Enuma Elish? <laughs> so now it's been well documented and it's it's found. So we have a more familiar here. Uh, somebody stumbled across thousands of years. Okay. This is tablet number five, which was recently found in Sulaymaniyah Museum in Iraq. Tablet five. This was just last year. Uh, somebody stumbled across it at the actual museum. It was never even labeled. Nobody knew exactly what it was until a, um, a, a scholar said, hey, babe, I think this looks familiar. <laughs> Could this be the missing tablet to the Enuma Elish? So now it's been well documented and it's, it's found. So we have a more complete story. So I want to talk a little bit about the translations of these tablets, and I want to really, again, add more credibility to this. Now, there's a researcher out there that a lot of people know by the name of Zachariah Sitchin. He didn't translate these tablets, okay? And the reason why I say that, I respect Zachariah Sitchin's work. I believe he's one of the greatest researchers in our modern day. I respect the effort that the guy put in. I love everything that he's, that he's done. I've read every single book that he's ever put out, and I've looked at every video he's ever been in. Uh, and I think that his work is just like all the other works of a lot of the other researchers and translators. Uh, it leaves a little room for your own perceptions. Now, what I found through reading probably six or seven different books about the Anunnaki and now translating the text myself, I come to find out that the underlying story, no matter who translates it, is always the same. People came here, they mined this earth resources, and at some point, they decided to genetically participate in, in creating or manipulating an existing hominid on this planet. So no matter what source you get it from, it's all the same story with different nuances. Some people think, you know, Nibiru. Some people think Sirius. Some th people think Pleiades. Some, some people think Orion. But I'm going to go over the translation credibility right now so that we can understand that these tablets were credibly translated by scholars a long time ago. The first one is George Smith. He lived from 1840 to 1876. He was an English Assyriologist, apprentice engraver, but self-taught in cuneiform in the corridors of the British Museum. So he actually was there the whole time and most likely was trained right there how to decipher cuneiform text uh, growing up. Eventually he was hired by Sir Henry Rawlinson, a prominent archeologist. Smith achieved worldwide attention when he discovered an ancient account of the flood with obvious biblical parallels in 1872 related to the Chaldean account of the deluge. This book expands on the previous work and presents numerous translations of tablets including the first print appearance of the Gilgamesh epics. So again, we have a very credible person here translating these tablets. Not Zachariah Sitchin, somebody extremely, extremely credible that worked at the actual British Museum. E.A. Spizer, I'm going to do a couple of these. E.A. Spizer, in 1926, E.A. Spizer won a Guggenheim Fellowship to study remains of the ancient Mitanni and Hurrians in northern Mesopotamia. While there in 1927, he discovered Tepe Guara, or the Great Mound, one of the world's earliest cradles of civilization, which we know as Iraq. In 1928, he was appointed Assistant Professor of Semitics at the University of Philadelphia and full professor in 1931. He was a field director of the Joint Excavation 
of the American Schools of Oriental Research and the University Museum in 1930 to 1932 and 1936 to 1937, undertaking excavations at Tempe Guara and Telbila. He also translated the uh, Hurian legal text found at Nuthi. After the war, he returned to the University of Pennsylvania where he uh, was chairman to the Department of Oriental Studies from 1947 until his death in 1965. He was also appointed Ellis Professor of Hebrew and Semitic Languages and Literatures there in 1954. He translated and wrote extensive commentary for the volume of Genesis on the Anchor Bible series and was one of the editors of the Torah and the New Jewish Publication Society of America version of the Old Testament. A noted student of his, teacher Professor Moshe Greenberg, became an Israel Prize Laureate in Bible Studies. So once again, we have a very credible source and I'll just read you one more because I think it's very important to lay this credibility down before we go in. Leonard William King, December 8, 1869 to August 20th, 1919. An English archaeologist and seriologist educated at rugby school and King's College in Cambridge, collected stone inscriptions widely in the Near East, taught Assyrian and Babylonian archaeology at King's College for a number of years, and published a large number of works on these subjects. He is also known for his translations of ancient works such as the Code of Hammurabi. He became the assistant to the keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiques at the British Museum. First Steps in Assyrian. These are some of his works. First Steps in Assyrian, a book for beginners. Being a serious historical, myth mythological, religious, magical, epistolary, and other texts printed in cuneiform characters with interlinear inter and transliteration and translation and sketch of Assyrian uh, grammar. Uh, so, I mean, this guy is one of the top people in the world at this. Another one is Letters and Inscriptions of Hammurabi, 1898. He was a contributor to the English Biblica, uh, Encyclopedia Biblica in 1903. Uh, Egypt and Western Asia in light of recent discoveries, 1907. I mean, you can, I can just go on. This guy is, a, is, a, is very credible. So we've kind of really laid down the credibility of the, of the translation of the tablets. And I think everybody here kind of can agree that what we're going to be learning today is most likely an accurate translation. So also, where are they located? Are, they physical, are there physical copies available? Yes. The physical stones themselves are actually, actually located in London at the British Museum. They're not on public display, however, but they're there. They actually exist in London at the British Museum. Uh, you can go online to the British Museum website and you can actually pull up the library of Ashurbanipal and then you can view the tablets here yourself. People say, if they were so advanced, well, why were they writing on clay tablets? Well, if I were to, my, I have, today, this is 2018 now, I've been through four computers in the last four years, almost a computer a year, a laptop a year. They just, they, they just, you know, they're, they're made by man. They destroy very easily. I mean, if you leave them out in the rain and weather, forget about it, it's over. If I drop it in a tub of water, it's done. These stone tablets have lasted for thousands and thousands of years. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were leaving an, a record behind that we would find in the future almost like a time capsule of information, which is why the, the Sumerians and the Anunnaki put a lot of stuff into stone. They built through stone, megalithic structures. They built information. They computed sacred geometry, mathematics, uh, cosmology, everything into stone. And one of the things they've done well with stone is they've actually been able to write on it and bake it and put it in a way where now, in this day and age, we're able to actually get it out, decipher it, and find out what happened back then. If it was done on paper and stuff like that, it's very highly unlikely. And another thing that I like about stone, it's very hard to change the information around. Kind of like some of the more modern religious books have been altered in so many ways. Uh, just with the modern Bible, over 8,000 incorrect translations just in that one book. 
Now multiply that over many, many books uh, and many different publishers, and you start to find out a lot of information is backwards. Just to give you a small example, uh, Moses did not cross the Red Sea, he crossed the Sea of Reeds. So he didn't cross the Red Sea, he crossed the Sea of Reeds, which is another smaller sea, much closer and much easier to cross. <laughs> but when you go to the original translations, you, you find this out, you know, so, but these are some of the, that's just a small one that, um, and this is still being taught today that Moses crossed the Red Sea, but he actually didn't cross the Red Sea according to the actual original text. Now, Another good point here is that one, le more, one last piece of credibility. Anybody here now can decipher these tablets for themselves. You don't have to be an expert translator, a linguist, an expert in cuneiform. You can go to the UCLA CDLI library online for free, grab a stone tablet off the virtual shelf, drop it into a translator, and read the tablet. So it's no more, oh, Zachariah Sitchin, oh, this one here, or this one there. No, we can do it ourselves. It's up to us to find the information. It's up to us to dig and do the research. And all the tools have, made, have been made available to you in this day and age so that you can find out exactly what happened back then. Uh, so the UCLA was kind enough to put this up, and uh, these translations are very accurate. And again, anybody can spend their time and go through these translations, and what you're going to discover is what we already know. The story, the underlying story, the fundamental basis of the story is very, very similar, no matter who writes a book about it. Now the Torah has been known as the law of God, which is actually what it translates to. Uh, a lot of the text in the Torah comes from Assyrian and Sumerian. A lot of the information in this book, and on the, in this scripture, originates from thousands and thousands of years prior. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, you know, you're saying names like Marduk when I'm talking online and making posts and stuff, and you're talking about Enki and Enlil and all these Anunnaki people, but where's their name, where does their name exist anywhere else? in the Torah. <laughs> the Torah knows all about Enki and Lil, Marduk, uh, all these people, all these characters. They're all in, the, in, the, in these uh, texts. But some of the texts um, are amazingly copied virtually almost word for word from the Sumerian tablets. Here's the um, ancient Jewish history website, jewishvirtuallibrary.org. The jewishvirtuallibrary.org. And in here, I just did use the simple hi highlight tool to search for the word Marduk. But it's basically one of the lines that's saying that um, Marduk was the son of uh, Enki uh, and that his rise to power ahead of time, because they always went, rose to power based on celestial movements, Marduk battled to rise to power ahead of time uh, and became the one that rules in Pisces, which is when the Christian religion rose and monotheism rose because he's the one who ushered in monotheism. He's the one who became the sun god and ordered Akhenaten uh, to usher in monotheism and another thing that a lot of people don't know, um, they've gotten it wrong, is a lot of the noses that have been knocked off of all the statues and, and so forth, it's not because uh, white people didn't want black people to know that they were black. I, I just got to tell you like it is. It's because Akhenaten ordered it to be done. When I went to Egypt, not only did he order that, he ordered thousands upon thousands of glyphs, hieroglyphs of the ancient gods, Osiris and everybody else, to be defaced and removed, and a lot of them were even deleted. Story, many stories even deleted, which is why he was, you know, they proclaimed heresy against him and, and basically ran him out of there. But um, that's the truth behind monotheism and the truth behind a lot of these. No, I'm not saying all of them, but I'm telling you, based off of my personal experience, getting on a plane, getting my passport stamped, and going to Egypt, 
and sitting with homegrown Egyptologists and homegrown guides uh, and finding out these stories and then researching these tablets for myself and researching these books, I found out that that's what happened. Um, and there's so many areas when you go to Egypt that these temples are completely defaced. Almost every single hieroglyph has been scraped off. You can just see the outlines of the hieroglyphs. And I'm talking about tens of thousands of glyphs. And these were done so long before Napoleon and all these other people even were born. Okay, so it's a fact. But the, the Jewish um, history knows all about Marduk and Enki and Lil and everybody else. So that's the beginning part of what I want to talk about with the Enumilish. Now we're going to get into some cosmology because the Enumilish is a very interesting story. It really is a combination of two stories. One part is talking about the creation of the solar system, which sounds like a battle between people, but it's really a battle between planets. The Sumerians wrote this story uh, based on their belief that the planets were sentient beings and even gave them names. Now over millennia, as the story was retold and retold, the names changed a little bit to, to the victor being the god ruling at that time. And in this particular case, uh, Marduk was Nibiru, the planet that crashed into Tiamat, which we're going to see in a minute. Right here we have a picture, an image of the uh, 2 trillion Hubble Skybook. They've now cataloged 2 trillion galaxies. And that's just a small view of the sky. And each galaxy has about 200 million suns and over 100 million planets. Now do the math just on that small spot of the sky that we've cataloged so far. The fact that we are not alone is not even a question. We're the new kids on the block. We just arrived here. There's people out there, and the human race is prevalent in this universe. Prevalent. In this galaxy, at least. Um, the evidence of, it, evidence of it is all around us. There may be slightly different versions of us, how we look, the color of our skin, and everything else. But the evidence is all around us. Let's take a little bit of a look of where we are. Right now, we know that we're in the Milky Way galaxy. And that little tiny dot with that circle is our sun and our solar system. Out of all of those trillions and trillions of solar systems out there and galaxies and everything else, that's us, this little dot right here. On this outer arm, I'm sorry, of the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Well, let's, let's really analyze this a little bit and take a, a closer look at this. This is what we've been taught so far. That's a standard solar system model that we've been taught our whole lives, basically, for the, for the most part. Okay, now, let's analyze what we've, now we've seen what we've been taught, let's analyze what really, what's really going on. Scientists now know that we are not from here, okay? We meaning our entire solar system. We are the aliens, okay? Let's really analyze this. <clears throat> Imagine the shock of growing up in a loving family with people you call mom and dad, and then suddenly learning that you are actually adopted. This same sense of shock came as scientists announced that the sun, the moon, our planet and its siblings were not born into the familiar band of stars known as the Milky Way galaxy, but we actually belong to a strange formation with an unfamiliar name of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. We are from another galaxy. Spa Earth is really a spaceship. We have, not, not in the sense of a metal, metallic object, but an actual biological you know, object, we've traveled as two galaxies have merged. Using volumes of data from the Two Micron All Sky Survey, a, a major project to survey the sky in infrared light led by the University of Massachusetts, the astronomers 
are, answer, are answering questions that have baffled scientists for decades and proving that our, our own Milky Way is consuming one of its neighbors in a dramatic display of ongoing galactic cannibalism. <laughs> the study published in the Astro Astrophysical Journal is the first to map the full extent of the Sagittarius galaxy and show its visual vivid detail how its debris wraps around and passes through our Milky Way galaxy. Sagittarius is 10,000 times smaller in mass than the Milky Way and so it's getting stretched out, torn apart, and gobbled up by the bigger Milky Way. So, we are from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, and this type of thing happens all the time, believe it or not. Galaxies collide and form bigger and bigger galaxies. A lot of people don't know that. Some of the ga Our galaxy is relatively small compared to some of the galaxies out there. Let's take a quick look at the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy and how it's wrapping around on this computer model, uh, thanks to um, the University of Virginia. This is a uh, model showing here. You see that as, as uh, gravitationally as, uh, as the Sagittarius has been pulled apart and wrapped around, where it dives down into the uh, Milky Way, you see exactly the point of intersection. You see that yellow dot? That's our sun. That's our sun right there. Okay? So a lot of people have probably never heard of this, but we're from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. This is public, peer-reviewed, scientific data. Okay, not something that somebody just decided to make up. This is real data, guys. So, aliens, welcome. <laughs> the next time you meet somebody and you say, have you ever seen an alien, just, and they shake your hand, just say, nice to meet you. We're all aliens. We're not from here. Okay? That's why I think borders are a joke. All right? <laughs> now, a, a new infrared uh, digital survey of the entire sky was made in 2003. Teams from the University of Virginia and Massachusetts used a supercomputer to sort through half of the billion stars to create a new star map showing our solar system, which is the yellow circle that you just saw, to be the exact nexus crossroads where the two galaxies are actually joining. It's clear who the bully is in the interaction, says Stephen Majewski, University of Virginia professor of astronomy and lead author on the paper describing the results. Again, very credible people here putting this information out. This is not a guy that woke up in a robe and slippers on a prepaid phone and decided to post this information online. This is real scientific data, okay? Uh, if people had infrared sensitive eyes, the entrails of the Sagittarius would be, prominent, uh, would be a prominent picture sweeping across our night sky, Majewski said. But at human visual wavelengths, they become buried in the countless intervening stars and obscuring dust. The great expanse of the Sagittarius system has been hidden from view. So, guys, this is an amazing discovery. Um, I didn't know about this myself until about four years ago. Uh, I didn't have enough data, you know, that I could pull together to, to put it all in into, into one simple presentation. Now I do, which I'm very pleased that they've been able to get a lot of this information out. But this is a very important uh, piece of information to understand that uh, we ourselves aren't from here because you start to understand what happens when planets become rogue and they go out there and they float through space like we're talking about Planet X and the Bureau and all these other planets and people go, oh, it can't be, it's impossible. Well, we ourselves are a result of a collision. Now, just like atoms are mostly empty space, believe it or not, galaxies are mostly empty space. The distances are so far and vast that they typically pass through one another or coalesce together with very, you know, few collisions happening, but collisions do happen. But for the most part, a lot of the orbits will be switched around because of gravitational pull and so forth and so on. But, but this happens all the time. It's nothing, um, it's nothing that to be shocked oh. about. 
All right, now let's get into the second part of this, which the epic of the Atrahasis, or the Atrahasis epic, kind of merges with uh, the information from the Enuma Elish because both tell a very similar story. The Enuma Elish has some spaces missing, whereas the, uh, the epic of the Atrahasis, or the Atrahasis epic, fills those gaps. To think that you can get all information from one source is almost impossible. It's like putting together pieces of a puzzle. So when somebody says, oh, I read this one book all my life and this book is, this is it, I'm done. No. That one book led me into reading over a thousand books. Okay? Over a thousand books. And I've posted my book list online many times. Uh, and that's just a partial list that I can fit with 2,200 characters on Instagram and maybe sometimes I'll put up the 3,500 characters on Facebook. There's so many books out there and so much information out there that you have to analyze, break down, decipher, digest, and begin to put together the pieces of the puzzle. Even going into Sumerian tablets, you have to analyze the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Vedas, in Sumerian tablets, the Bible, the Torah, the Quran. You have to analyze all of it. You can't just say, I'm going to read this one book and that's going to be history. That's everything that's going to, that's everything that's happened. It doesn't work that way. You have to really go in and break everything down and start putting together the pieces of the puzzle. The Atreides epic is written at really, really around the same time as the Enuma Elish and gives a little bit of a deeper account as to the part now that we move away from, we're going to move away a little bit from cosmology into, uh, into actual beings. Now let's take a look at this because, you know, rogue planets like that, like the Nibiru or Planet X or Brown Dwarf Stars, how real are they and how many are there out there? Uh, that's, this is another big question. It's like, oh man, you know, it sounds pretty good and everything, but I just don't believe there's planets out there floating around in space. And how, how can a planet float, go that far away from the sun and come back? And, and how can there be people living on it and everything else? So you see, mainstream science already knows this happened in ancient times. It's not a mystery to them. They love to hide the truth in plain sight. This information has been put out over and over again over many decades but it's put out in so many small pieces that nobody can really put the whole pieces of the puzzle together. And that's what I'm attempting to do here. Rogue planets, there's billions of them out there. This is from Scientific American. Wandering in the void. Wait, billions of planets without a home. There's billions of planets out there that are just free-floating in space. Now this is an image from NASA depicting a brown dwarf star that they believe is orbiting our sun, which means that we live in a binary solar system. We don't have one sun in our solar system, we have two. This is very important to understand because the worldview and everything you've been taught since you were a little kid is that we have one sun and the planets go right around it and that's it. We have two suns, we live in a binary. I'm gonna provide evidence and proof of that right now today. But this is a very interesting graphic that they've shown because it depicts the same ancient information about uh, an, a rogue planet orbiting our sun every 3,600 years in a very elliptical orbit, which came from the Enuma Elish. And you don't have to add a little conspiracy to it. The top is NASA, the bottom is the Star Trek logo. <laughs> Just very interesting. Also, the very first episode of Star Trek ever released, I think it was 1954, uh, the very first place that the starship visited was a brown dwarf star. Call me crazy. They like to hide the truth in plain sight, folks. NASA announced that they discovered Planet Nine. Okay, it was actually NASA, it was actually Caltech working for NASA. These Caltech scientists discovered a planet. They discovered not only one planet, 
but multiple orbiting in very elliptical orbits and very strange orbits inside of our solar system. The one particular that's about four to six times the size of the Earth, they, they labeled it Planet Nine because the Sumerians labeled it the tenth planet, but they wouldn't do that. But uh, they labeled, labeled it Planet Nine. Um, just because they didn't want to be exact. <laughs> Let's take a quick look at the effect of a rogue planet coming through our solar system. You see these planets, standard solar system here, you see the arrows. Well, look at the first one, Mercury. Mercury orbits counterclockwise on its axis. Counterclockwise on its axis. This is evidence of a rogue planet or a very large body coming through our solar system and disturbing or what they call perturbing the orbits. If you look a little further down, you can see the Earth tilts on its orbit. That's the way it coalesced. But um, you look a little further back and you get to Uranus. It's on its side. And also, scientific data shows that Uranus and Neptune switched positions in the ancient past. The orbits, when you take the orbits all the way back, you rewind them with scientific data, you discover that they switched positions at some point. And something came through, as you saw in the Enuma Elish, if, if you were aware of that part, when they talked about uh, Uranus, uh, and and the, uh, as, it passed, as Nibiru passed by, it moved it onto its side, and it's still on its side till this very day. So Uranus is, has a, a very strange orbit, a very strange uh, orbit on its axis as it orbits the sun. <coughs> but it's very interesting that Mercury is going in the opposite direction of every, every other planet. So now, let's start to get into some of the accounts, some of the ancient accounts of this happening and people coming from other places. Because like I said earlier, some, of it, some people believe, based on what they've read in the tablets, that it's... Um, that you know these Anunnaki came from Sirius. Some believe they came from Orion. Some believe it was the Pleiades. Some believe it's this rogue planet Nibiru. I happen to believe that it's a rogue sun or a brown dwarf star that was captured by our solar system, possibly in the merger between the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy. I can see that happening with that type of you know that type of uh, those type of large spatial bodies and suns merging with our galaxy or merging with this galaxy now it's ours and all of a sudden having a captured brown dwarf star and all the brown dwarf stars is a failed sun a sun that didn't completely ignite but it's still large enough and and powerful enough gravitationally to have other planets orbit it and and provide enough warmth for those planets to have life on them which we'll see in a second also this is the Dogon tribe okay some of you may have heard of them some of you may have not heard of them the Dogon tribe have a very interesting story in that they originate from Egypt, which was actually Kem in ancient times, before it was called Egypt. The Dogon started there. Uh, for whatever reason, their tribe left out of Egypt and moved into Mali, Africa. So they took the secret wisdom and sacred wisdom of this information that I'm going to show you now along with them and have passed it down for thousands and thousands of generations. And here we are now today with the Dogon tribe describing celestial information that we only discovered more recently in the 1970s. They believe that the Nomo Anunnaki came from a star system named Sirius. Uh, not only just Sirius, but a dark star out there called, we call it Sirius B, which is actually a failed star or a star that ran out of fuel. It's a very small uh, dim light in the sky that can't be seen with the naked eye, and it wasn't even detected by astronomers until recently, which we'll see in a second. They also depict these creatures or these Anunnaki beings as being fish-like people or having fish suits on. And you see how they dress up in this garb and attire when they do their rituals to honor the Anunnaki, these nomos. There's also in the top center, there's a Sumerian seal. That Sumerian seal depicts Enki and Enlil wearing fish suits. 
And there's a reason for that, which we're going to go over in a couple of minutes. They know what's out there. And this information is still not in any history book or school book or anything. How can we know everything? How can we see everything? But if they don't publish and put it in, into books that we can give access to the masses, it's probably published in a, in, a, in a scientific journal. Not everybody reads those. So this is the Trappist star system. Uh, the Trappist star system is a brown dwarf that was discovered by the Hubble, Hubble Skyview, I'm sorry. And it has planets orbiting it, and they're in a habitable zone. And the reason why I want to show this image is because it proves that a brown dwarf star can have a habitable zone. It can have planets orbiting it that can sustain life. And this information came out last year. It was a very big announcement by NASA that they discovered this, uh, this sun, which is just 40 light years away, a brown dwarf that has planets orbiting it. So the enuma list begins to become more and more real. We're almost done here now. This is a book called Through, the, Through Alien Eyes uh, by William Bateman. The reason why I chose this image is because we're going to talk real briefly about the occurrence of people on this planet and, on, and Anunnaki on this planet. And I like this cover because based off of what I read between the Sumerian tablets, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, Indian Vedas, and a lot of other ancient texts that I can go through, I discovered that these Anunnaki beings weren't just one race of people. Some authors believed that they were all one color. Some people believed they were all white. Some people believed they were all black. Some people believed they were all Indian. Some people believed they were all or indigenous. Some people believed they were all blue-skinned. When you go to Egypt and you see these people depicted as green beings and you and, and <laughs> blue beings and blue beings in in, uh, in India, uh, and you look at and you read the accounts of these beings, and some of their spouses were even from other planets. <laughs> these people were multi-racial people, and the evidence of that is the fact that when you look around this room right now, we're not all one color. We're not all one. We're all a human race, but we're not all the same color or the same specific sub-race, because as they spread around the planet, they put their own genetic markers on indigenous hominids, mm. which is the evidence of that is in the uh, Emerald Tablets. This is a book uh, called In the Beginning by a good friend of mine named Alex Teplish. It's a very good book about the Anunnaki, if you can get it. And it's a very easy read with a lot of graphics in it. I like it because it really gives you a very brief summary. You can read it in, a, in four hours uh, and knock it all the way out. And it gives you a lot of good information about the Anunnaki and the history of them coming to Earth 450,000 years ago. They made their way here 450,000 years ago. I want to go into the Sumerian Kings list right before we end. This is very important. This is one of the most important things. It's only like uh, less than a minute. But the, the importance of this is the fact that 450,000 years ago, the Anunnaki decided to come to this planet to mine for resources that they needed. And why would they do that? Well, we're doing the same thing. We now have a mission to go to an asteroid to mine it for resources. So why wouldn't a, a species more advanced than us do the same thing? For whatever reason that they needed them, we don't specifically know. Okay, some say it was gold, some say, but we have evidence that they mined all different types of resources, not just gold. The gold uh, um, uh, mines have been discovered in Africa, dating back a couple hundred thousand years, which ironically is around the same exact time that Homo sapiens appeared on this planet, uh, and the evidence has now been discovered. Uh, but the Sumerian Kings is before the flood. So what happened was before the flood, according to the Enuma Elish, the Anunnaki ruled this planet themselves. They worked themselves. They did all the mining themselves. They didn't have human beings here to work for them as slaves. They were doing the work. And they had these, this group of working class Anunnaki called Ejiji. That's exactly specifically the name given in the Numelish and the Epic of Atreasis. Well, they got tired of all this work. They were working, 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 but they weren't supposed to be slaves. But if they would let up on the work, they would be punished. So what does that tell you? <laughs> slaves. 
Uh, so these, these, these people enslaved their own people uh, and themselves. They did all the mining themselves. They didn't have human beings here to work for them as slaves. They were doing the work. And they had these, this group of working class Anunnaki called Ijiji. That's exactly specifically the name given in the Numelish and the Epic of Akraesis. Well, they got tired of all this work. They were working, 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 but they weren't supposed to be slaves. But if they would let up on the work, they would be punished. So what does that tell you? <laughs> slaves. Um, so these, these, these people enslaved their own people uh, and forced them, this working class, to do all this work. A lot of the work was done on Mars, and a lot of the work was done here on Earth, but Mars was very brutal for the, for the Ijiji, and they were complaining that uh, because of the thin atmosphere and because of lack of water and resources, uh, and Mars is actually like a way station for them to relaunch back to their home planet with these resources, uh, and no women, they were going to have a revolt. So they decided to revolt against Enki and Enlil. They came back to Earth in, in ships. I don't think they were boat ships on oceans. I think they were starships. They came here. They encircled Enki's property and Enlil's property and threatened to go all out. <coughs> we're listening to Billy Carson on Anunnaki. All out war on a revolt. Now, if you're not being enslaved, why would you need to revolt against something? They were obviously being forced to do this labor for many shards, and the shards 3,600 years, and they did it for hundreds of shards. So at that point, when Anu, who was Enki and Enlil's father, saw what was going on, he decided to find a way to come up with a solution because it didn't make any sense. It was going to slow down production and everything else. Uh, Enki says, well, there's an existing hominid on this planet that we can genetically modify, bringing them up by adding our essence to them and making them do the labor, bear the labor of the EGG. And this is exactly what they decided to do. Now they had a couple of experiments in the beginning where they created these cloning chambers, which have also been discovered, these ancient type of chambers where the, the remnants of them are left behind in Africa and also in Iraq. Dominic Joyce, one of my researchers in Anunnaki history, went to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England for me and took a video, this is from his own phone, of the King's List, the Sumerian King's List, which is a physical thing that really exists. You can go see it for yourself. These kings ruled for that many, 241,000 years, just eight kings. Um, they, they ruled over themselves. There weren't any humans at the time until towards the end. And after the flood came, which the flood was pulled on by Enlil, Enlil said, okay, it's, it's, I, I want to start fresh again. We, we need to start fresh. These humans now are reproducing too much. They're making too much noise. And I think we should just wipe it out and start fresh. And he was very brutal. He would put plagues out. Uh, he would just call humans at will. Very evil person. He's the one actually named uh, in a lot of ancient texts as Satan or Satan. And Lil is Satan. Now, he twisted it on his brother Enki because Enki was, uh, fell in love with humans, uh, was the creator, but put a little bit too much juice in us. Huh. Gives a little bit too much DNA, which science likes to call junk DNA, which is actually just disconnected upper-level, high-level genetics, um, but gave us a higher level of consciousness, consciousness that he was told to give. Uh, he was also the one that was the father, most likely, of Atrahasis, which is Noah, and gave him information on how to avoid the flood, by the, which, by the way, in the Atrahasis epic was only a seven-day advance notice. He didn't have years to build an ark, by the way, guys. The Atrahasis says it was only seven days advance notice, and he gathered some local animals and some uh, some, some of his contents and so forth in his family and they got on the boat and they survived the flood which, which pissed off Enlil even more. So after the flood is when they decided to 
to uh, enter an agreement to allow human beings, half human, half Anunnaki beings, to be pharaohs and kings over human beings. So after the flood is when kingship was actually handed down to mankind. This is the Atreus' epic uh, tablet, which is also in the British Museum. And you can go to the British Museum website and see it there. Uh, the Emerald Tablet has a very good de uh, description of what happened after the Great Flood, which I think is very important to understand. I'm going to go right into just the information. This is from the first tablet. Over the world, then broke the Great Water. So right now, 36,000 years ago, the Emerald Tablet, which was written, uh, is telling us that water broke over the Earth, changing Earth's balance until only the Temple of Light was left. Standing in the great mountain on Undal, still rising out of the water, some there too were living, saved from the rush of the fountain. So we have evidence of a flood 36,000 years ago. In my book, the Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, lends credibility to these tablets. Who wrote them? How many famous people have deciphered them? Where Isaac Newton's copy is and everything else. Okay, so these tablets are real objects that exist uh, and were really written about. Now, what's important about this is the fact that it talks about a flood 36,000 years ago. And why I say that's important is because when you look at two processional, uh, three processional periods of the Sphinx of Great Egypt, the Great Sphinx, you discover that's about 36,000 years ago, or three ice ages ago when that Sphinx was built. Now the evidence is, is uh, compounding on the fact that the, the weathering of the Sphinx puts it back around three processional periods of Leo, which means that the Sphinx is, is exactly where it's supposed to be 36,000 years ago when these tablets were written by Thoth, who also claimed to be the builder of the Great Pyramid in the Emerald Tablets themselves, which were written 36,000 years ago. He himself ruled over Egypt or ancient Kem for 14,000 years. So we have an, another ancient account written by Thoth the Atlantean of him and his people. Uh, in this account, in the first tablet, him and his crew get sent out by Enki, who's also called Thoughtme, to go to the land of Kem. But they, they, what they do, they say they get into the skyship and they rise up over the land and they go to the land of Kem over the waters and then they, they descend onto the land. So they're rising up and descending, which means that they're in something that can actually take off and land. It's not a boat that goes on the ocean. At which point they get out. Now when they get out, these barbarians, these most likely are survivors or humankind has been knocked back into the Stone Age, come to attack them where Thoth raises his staff and sends out a ray of vibration, stopping them still as a stone in the mountain. The Thoth is actually the son of, um, uh, uh, one of the sons of Enki, and also fell in love with humans and was the one who brought, taught us writing and reading, and, and, and a lot of different knowledges. Chem, which is chemistry, which is why they called it Chem, the land of Chem before it was Egypt, and also alchemy. He was an alchemist. But his father tells him to go out and do this and raise these barbarians to a high level of civilization. And then, in the first tablet, Thoth tells his crew to spread out over the planet and bring everybody to a high level of civilization. So here we have an account 36,000 years ago, post-flood, of people that are very advanced, whether they're from here or not, going around the planet and spreading uh, knowledge and information and enlightenment and bringing people to a high level of civilization. And the evidence of that is the fact that we have these tablets, we have Sumerians that know the orbit of uh, planets around our sun, we know that they claim in this particular tablet, VA243, which is in the museum, that this particular intruder planet exists, according to the Sumerians, and now we have found it with our own scientific data. We have the Sumerian account of the solar system showing that there's a nemesis or a brown dwarf or red dwarf star potentially orbiting our sun that has planets orbiting it, which could be the home of our progenitors at some point in the past. Uh, evidence of, uh, of a global civilization is all around us. Greece, Egypt, you know, India, Assyria, China, it's everywhere. Sphinxes are everywhere. 
You can find sphinxes. You can find pyramids on every continent. Um, this is one in, in Romania, the Shaggy Mountain Sphinx, a very famous sphinx there. A lot, a lot of people don't know about that one. We have um, Mexico, Egypt, and Cambodia, pyramidal structures that are almost identical. We have them on the same, almost the same, um, you know, longitude line. So we basically have these megalithic structures built all around the globe on, on these earth energy lines. And we have pyramids everywhere, which means we have one architect. We have an architect that has gone around the planet, most likely several architects that have learned from the same source, this knowledge, and put their own little spin on the civilizations around the planet. Again, proving that uh, we have been engaged by a species with, uh, or people with a, with a higher level of knowledge than us, and that imparted it to us. And then we did a lot of the work, but we were taught, this, we were taught how to do the work. A master architect doesn't go build a building. He draws the plans out, and then the workers go put it together. These are the Earth's energy grid lines. On every single one of these cross points, you can find an anomaly on this planet. Okay, so globally, we have anomalies at every single point, including right off the edge of, right off the coast of Florida in the Bermuda Triangle. We have uh, found and discovered pyramids down there, still emitting some type of exotic energy. Now, if you take a hole right through the Earth directly to the other side of the planet from the Bermuda Triangle, you end up in the Devil's Triangle by Japan, right off the coast of Japan. Well, you have another famous, well-known, gigantic underwater pyramid there. Again, evidence that we have the same construction techniques being used by the same people all over the planet. I want to thank everybody for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Can I start trading bots? Awesome. You're not satisfied with the growth? You get a full refund and no questions asked. My $150,000 account is up. Uh, oh, wow. Anyway, at least the Babylonian Epic of Creation. Complete audiobook. It's only one hour, 17 minutes long. That seems pretty cool. This thing doesn't rotate properly. There we go. So that was uh, that was Billy Carson unveiling ancient wisdom of an and the origins of our galaxy. Awesome, awesome, very exciting scholarship. Billy, let's run for the executive. Mm.
but let's run. Our country needs us. Corrupt and one lunatic. Lunatic. So that's my message to Lee. Copy. Okay. Discard. Okay. <clears throat> For the comp. You still there? Okay, yes. Hello, darlings. Shout out to K A N P State Radio with the University of Everettstone. On the res with just a Travel radio. Right, I gotta do something. Magical epistolary and other text printed in something called a stylus, and we're gonna show. Right here we have a picture, an image, of the uh, 2 trillion Hubble Skybook. They've now cataloged 2 trillion galaxies. Hmm. And that's just a small hmm. American wandering in the void. An expert in CUNY form. You can go to the UCLA CDLI library online. Right here we have a picture, an image, of the uh, 2 trillion Hubble Skybook. They've hmm. now cataloged 2 trillion galaxies and that's just a small view of the sky and each galaxy has about 200 million suns and over 100 million planets Two trillion galaxies. now do the math just on that small spot of the sky that we've cataloged so far the fact that we are not alone is not even a question we are the new kids on the block the block we just arrived here there's people out there and the human race is prevalent in this universe prevalent in this galaxy at least um the evidence of it evidence of it is all around us there may be slightly different versions of us and how we look the color of our skin and everything else but the evidence is all around us let's take a little bit of a look of where we are right now we know that we're in the milky way galaxy and that little tiny dot with that circle is our sun and our solar system out of all of those trillions and trillions of solar systems out there and galaxies and everything else, that's us, this little dot right here on this outer arm, I'm sorry, of the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Well, let's, let's really analyze this a little bit and take a closer look at this. This is what we've been taught so far. That's a standard solar system model that we've been taught our whole lives, basically, for the, for the most part. 
Okay, now let's analyze what we now we've seen what we've been taught. Let's analyze what really what's really going on. Scientists now know that we are not from here. Okay? We meaning our entire solar system. We are the aliens, okay? Let's really analyze this. <clears throat> Imagine the shock of growing up in a loving family with people you call mom and dad, and then suddenly learning that you are actually adopted. This same sense of shock came as scientists announced that the sun, the moon, our planet, and its siblings were not born into the familiar band of stars known as the Milky Way galaxy, but we actually belong to a strange formation with an unfamiliar familiar name of the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. We are from another galaxy. Spa Earth is really a spaceship. We have, not, not in the sense of a metal, metallic object, but an actual biological you know, object, we've traveled as two galaxies have merged. Using volumes of data from the two-micron all-sky survey, a, a major project to survey the sky in infrared light led by the University of Massachusetts, the astronomers are, are answering questions that have baffled scientists for decades and proving that our, our own Milky Way is consuming one of its neighbors in a dramatic display of ongoing galactic cannibalism. The study published in the Astro Astrophysical Journal is the first to map the full extent of the Sagittarius galaxy and show its visual vivid detail how its debris wraps around and passes through our Milky Way galaxy. Sagittarius is 10,000 times smaller in mass than the Milky Way and so it's getting stretched out, torn apart, and gobbled up by the bigger Milky Way. So we are from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy and this type of thing happens all the time, believe it or not. Galaxies collide and form bigger and bigger galaxies. A lot of people don't know that. Some of the ga Our galaxy is relatively small compared to some of the galaxies out there. Let's take a quick look at the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy and how it's wrapping around on this computer model uh, thanks to um, the University of Virginia. This is a, a model showing here. You see that as, as gravitationally as, as the Sagittarius has been pulled apart and wrapped around, where it dives down into the uh, Milky Way, you see exactly the point of intersection. You see that yellow dot? That's our sun. That's our sun right there. Okay? So a lot of people have probably never heard of this, but we're from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. This is public, peer-reviewed, scientific data. Okay, not something that somebody just decided to make up. This is real data, guys. So, aliens, welcome. <laughs> the next time you meet somebody and you say, "Have you ever seen an alien?" just and they shake your hand, just say, "Nice to meet you." We're all aliens. We're not from here. Okay, that's why I think borders are a joke. All right. <laughs> now, a, a new infrared uh, digital survey of the entire sky was made in 2003. Teams from the University of Virginia and Massachusetts used a supercomputer to sort through half of the billion stars to create a new star map showing our solar system, which is the yellow circle that you just saw, to be the exact nexus crossroads where the two galaxies are actually joining. It's clear who the bully is in the interaction, says Stephen Majewski, University of Virginia professor of astronomy and lead author on the paper describing the results. Again, very credible people here putting this information out. This is not a guy that woke up in a robe and slippers on a prepaid phone and decided to post this information online. This is real scientific data, okay? Uh, if people had infrared-sensitive eyes, the entrails of the Sagittarius would be, prominent, uh, would be a prominent picture sweeping across our night sky, Majewski said. But at human visual wavelengths, they become buried in the countless intervening stars and obscuring dust. The great expanse of the Sagittarius system has been hidden from view. So, guys, this is an amazing discovery. Um, I didn't know about this myself until about four years ago. 
I didn't have enough data, you know, that I could pull together to, to put it all in into, into one simple presentation. Now I do, which I'm very pleased that they've been able to get a lot of this information out. But this is a very important uh, piece of information to understand that uh, we ourselves aren't from here because you start to understand what happens when planets become rogue and they go out there and they float through space like we're talking about Planet X, Nibiru, and all these other planets. And people go, oh, it can't be. It's impossible. Well, we ourselves are a result of a collision. Now, just like atoms are mostly empty space, believe it or not, galaxies are mostly empty space. The distances are so far and vast that they typically pass through one another or coalesce together with very you know, few collisions happening, but collisions do happen. But for the most part, a lot of the orbits will be switched around because of gravitational pull and so forth and so on. But, but this happens all the time. It's nothing, um, it's nothing that to be shocked about. All right, now let's get into the second part of this, which the epic of the Atrahasis, or the Atrahasis epic, kind of merges with uh, the information from the Enuma Elish because both tell a very similar story. The Enuma Elish has some spaces missing, whereas the, uh, the epic of the Atrahasis, or the Atrahasis epic, fills those gaps. To think that you can get all information from one source is almost impossible. It's like putting together pieces of a puzzle. So when somebody says, oh, I read this one book all my life, and this book is, this is it. I'm done. No. That one book led me into reading over a thousand books. Okay? Over a thousand books. And I've posted my book list online many times. Uh, and that's just a partial list that I can fit with 2,200 characters on Instagram, and maybe sometimes I put up the 3,500 characters on Facebook. There's so many books out there, so much information out there that you have to analyze, break down, decipher, digest, and begin to put together the pieces of the puzzle. Even going into the Sumerian tablets, you have to analyze the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Vedas, the Sumerian tablets, the Bible, the Torah, the Quran. You have to analyze all of it. You can't just say, I'm going to read this one book and that's going to be history. That's everything that's, going to, that's, everything that's happened. It doesn't work that way. You have to really go in and break everything down and start putting together the pieces of the puzzle. The Atra Aces epic is written at really, really around the same time as the Enuma Elish and gives a little bit of a deeper account as to the part now that we move away from, we're going to move away a little bit from cosmology into, uh, into actual beings. Now let's take a look at this because, you know, rogue planets like that, like Nibiru or Planet X or Brown Dwarf Stars, how real are they and how many are there out there? Uh, this, this is another big question. It's like, oh, man, you know, it sounds pretty good and everything, but I just don't believe there's planets out there floating around in space. And how, how can a planet float, go that far away from the sun and come back? And, and how can there be people living on it and everything else? So you see, mainstream science already knows this happened in ancient times. It's not a mystery to them. They love to hide the truth in plain sight. This information has been put out over and over again over many decades but it's put out in so many small pieces that nobody can really put the whole pieces of the puzzle together. And that's what I'm attempting to do here. Rogue planets, there's billions of them out there. This is from Scientific American. Wandering in the void, billions of planets without a home. There's billions of planets out there that are just free-floating in space. Now this is an image from NASA depicting a brown dwarf star that they believe is orbiting our sun, which means that we live in a binary solar system. We don't have one sun in our solar system. We have two. This is very important to understand because the worldview and everything you've been taught since you were a little kid is that we have one sun and the planets go right around it and that's it. We have two suns. We live in a binary. I'm going to provide evidence and proof of that right now today. 
But this is a very interesting graphic that they've shown because it depicts the same ancient information about uh, an, a rogue planet orbiting our sun every 3,600 years in a very elliptical orbit, which came from the Enuma Elish. And you don't have to add a little conspiracy to it. The top is NASA, the bottom is the Star Trek logo. <laughs> Just very interesting. Also, the very first episode of Star Trek ever released, I think it was 1954, uh, the very first place that the starship visited was a brown dwarf star. Call me crazy.